Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Well, guys, um, so great to be with all of you tonight. Um, we're going to be jumping right into Genesis chapter 13. And uh, we are picking up where Ian left off last week uh, on the story of Abram. Uh, and one of the things that I think is important uh, for us to, to consider, I remember taking a class from um, uh, being a part of a cohort with Gary Brashears at Western. And he posed the question, and whenever Gary would ask a, a question of the classroom, um, I spend enough time with him personally that I know that whatever he's asking you, whatever is the obvious answer, it's probably the exact opposite of that. And he loves to lure people into his trap so that he can find a whipping boy. Um, and I always felt bad for people that didn't know him well. And I remember him posing the question. He said, Abram, good guy or bad guy? Good guy or bad guy? And people are just me like, good guy. I'm like, you fell, you just went there. Um, and one of the things that he points out is that Abram is selected by God and there's an assumption that he is like worshiping and serving the one true God. Uh, but we don't actually know that from the text. And actually from where he's from, it's very likely that he wasn't. That God called him out of a pagan world um, and said, I have selected you. Not because, and this is one of the classic pictures of, of election. And I think it's a really important one to, that's worth pointing out that election is not God choosing someone at the expense of someone else. Election, the logic of election is God has chosen people that don't deserve to be chosen so that they can be conduits of his grace to everyone. In other words, Abram is selected by a gracious God who continues to pursue broken and rebellious humanity. And the story up to this point, we're only, we're only 13 chapters in, uh, you know, kudos to God, people not so awesome. I mean, what does Noah do? The first thing he does after God saves him, he gets drunk uh, and ends up cursing his son for exposing his nakedness. I mean, humanity, and the, it, God says, I'm not gonna flood the world again because I would have to flood it essentially every day because the heart is wicked and consistently set on things that uh, we ought not to do. So what does the scripture then portray God like? It portrays God as a God who pursues humanity in spite of our uh, reluctance, in, in spite of our rebellion, in, in spite of our fickleness, 
um, in spite of our idolatry. And he, yes, grabs Abram, and Abram believes God. He responds, and he goes where God calls him to go without knowing where he should be going. And Abram becomes the prototype of faith for us, that Abram trusts that God is who he says he is. He trusts that he's good. He trusts that, um, that he has a plan. Um, and we see even, we considered last week, Abram even getting afraid, becoming afraid and allowing, uh, allowing uh, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, to take his wife to keep himself from being, from being killed. And Pharaoh's like, why did you do that? What are you doing? This is your wife. Um, and so I, I think that Abram's not perfect. That's not the point of, of the kind of people. God doesn't pick like the person that's the most morally astute. He chooses Abram because it's his gracious nature to move into people's lives who don't deserve it. But the purpose of the choosing is so that he can be a blessing to all nations. That's what the promises to Abram are all about. And so I always say the logic of election is wrapped up in Jesus' own words to his disciples. You didn't choose me, I chose you. He isn't saying I chose you and rejected everyone else. He says, no, I chose you. And then what happens when we get to the Great Commission? I chose you so that now you can go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have taught you. Um, so election comes with a responsibility. I have chosen you so that I can, you can become a conduit of my love to all that you come in contact with. And I think that's a really important theme that I, I, was, I find that people get really disturbed by God just, you know, just grabbing someone and saying your mind was like, well, does that mean that he rejects people the same way? How does this work? Um, there's a mystery involved, but I, I would say that the main aspect of the mystery is actually wrapped up in God's goodness and his mercy and his great. The real mystery is that God chooses to love rebellious people at all. That's the mystery. So let's jump in to chapter 13. Abram's got his wife back. God prevented Pharaoh from doing anything stupid. Um, and this is a wonderful picture. And by the way, that motif of, because we're going to see him do it again, uh, it goes back to even the garden of, um, of, Abra of, of a man not, um, not playing into his God-given responsibility to be a protector um, and, to be, in, and to, to be a covering um, of his wife. Instead, he hides behind her, um, which is what we see happen in the, in the garden. And, and, and all of the fault and the blame, uh, as we'll consider when we get to the fall um, on Sunday morning, lands on Adam's head. It does not land on, on Eve's head. Um, in, in fact, it says even specifically, Paul says, just as sin entered into the world through one man. You're like, wait a minute, wasn't his wife? No, no. He was, he was negating his responsibility to be a protector. Um, they were to be in covenant partnership together. I'm not saying that she needed him to explain what is happening. It's they should have been side by side um, dealing with that temptation. But instead he's missing, but he's lingering in the background. Um, and, uh, and I think that is a negation of responsibility. So those motifs are going to continue to play out. And in spite of that, God still calls Abram one who is righteous. So Abram went up from Egypt into Negev. He took his wife and all his possessions with him as well as Lot. Um, by the way, I'm reading from the NET because I really like its translation. Um, 
Now, Abram was very wealthy in livestock, silver, and gold. Hey, you know what that word wealthy, um, the actual Hebrew translation of the word wealthy is? It's kind of cool. It's heavy. So we don't know for sure that it's talking about wealth. It could just mean that he was a big man. No, it doesn't. It's a, it's, but that's the word they would use to describe wealth. So the person is heavy. They, 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 there's a weight to what they possess because literally wealth then was things that actually weighed a lot, like cattle and gold. Most of those things, not light things. Um, <laughs> he was very heavy. Uh, and he journeyed from place to place from Negev as far as Bethel. And he returned to the place where he had pitched his tent at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. This is a place of significance, a place of worship. This is a place where he had first built the altar and there Abram worshiped the Lord. Uh, and I think this is a significant theme that's gonna continue to come back is, is this theme of remembrance that um, places of remembrance are established where, where worship, I'm reminded that my life, what is worship? Worship is not song sung before service, um, but worship is the total surrender of oneself to God's rule. Um, and we are physical beings in a physical world and we need places of remembrance. Um, we, this is why we, for us, the altar now is, is the sacraments. We, we come to the table and we remember, it's an, it's an act of worship. It's to realign our hearts and minds um, toward that place of total surrender. Uh, and I, I love that that theme is the, the building of an altar is, is significant. These are these reminders. I, we even say that when someone gets baptized, where it's like, it's not that there's necessarily something miraculous per se in the baptism, although I would argue that, it, that there is something more significant than just being submerged in water. I do think that there's a spiritual reality to it. Um, that, it's a, that it's a proclamation to the, both the seen and unseen world that you belong to Jesus. Um, but the altar itself is, is the, when we say with the baptism, what it is, is it becomes a marker. It marks a moment that is a continual reminder that you belong to another. It's like, it's why I just went away and celebrated uh, my anniversary, uh, 26 years, is that every year we it's it's the purpose of an anniversary um is is not just to celebrate that you made it <laughs> but it's to remind you of the covenant um and 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 even and even an opportunity to rekindle what caused you to come into that covenant to begin with so i think that this is a i, I always say about worship is that there is there is a um a a sacred romance if you will and that worship is um it, worship is the total surrender to, to the goodness of God in such a way that it actually rekindles the heart um, it, as we call our, our night fellowship of the burning heart that the heart um, is inflamed with a love for Jesus um, because we have taken the time to remember that we love him only because he first loved us um, this, is, this should be the goal even of scripture we dig into the scripture not to know more but to know him more deeply, um, to fall more deeply in love with him, that we might remember um, again and again um, who we are in Christ. This is the purpose of worship. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the, Lord, but the land could not support them while they were living side by side because their possessions were so great they were not able to live alongside one another. 
Um, so there were quarrels between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. So this is a massive, this is like a, essentially a town, uh, a traveling town, if you will. Um, and you imagine they're both, they're both wealthy, which means they had tremendous amounts of livestock, the amount of land necessary for grazing, all of that, the impact that they would have anywhere they went um, was, was becoming too much. And, and not only that, it became difficult. Who's leading here? Um, can you have two captains? That's always, <laughs> that's always a question. And the realization that, that if they wanted to maintain um, a peaceable relationship, it was probably best that they went their separate ways. And this is what it goes on to say. Um, so there were quarrels between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Now the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the, in the land at that time. Abram said to Lot, let there be no quarreling between me and you and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen for we are close relatives. Um, and I love this. Sometimes we have to surrender things that matter to us. Like here, this is a, this is, I'm, I am actually recognizing that our relationship to be protected um, requires a space between us. Um, and I, I think that this is one of the, those great themes that we, um, that, uh, that life is, is marked by sacrifice. Um, and th this is a sacrifice, it's a sacrifice. Abram clearly loves Lot, as we'll see, his willingness to risk his life to save him um, just a few, uh, just a couple chapters later, actually more than once. And so there, and what is he going to say? Let there no, be no quarrels between you and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself now from me. Now this is the fascinating thing about what Abram does. He does not have to do this. Abram is clearly the more powerful of the two. Um, and he offers Lot. He graciously puts himself last and says, you pick where you want to go and I will go where you do not go. Um, which he didn't need to do that. He could have said, this is where I'm going. Lot, you need to go somewhere else. But that's not what he does. Um, he says, it's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you go to the left, then I'm going to go to the right. But if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw the whole region of the Jordan. He noticed that all of it was well watered before the Lord obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah. This is an insertion um, that's, that's pointing us to something that's coming. Um, and also the, wanting us to recognize that Lot is choosing to put himself in a precarious situation. Um, and so, uh, so the, the note is... I think it's here to let, let us know that A, there was already a reputation of the place that he chose to go to. Um, you know, it's like if you said, you can pick anywhere you want, and you said to me, I want to move to Las Vegas. So that's suspect. If you could pick anywhere that you, anywhere in the world, and you want to go there, my gut would tell me you possibly have a gambling problem or other kinds of problems that I don't want to think about. Um, but. So what, what happens? Lot looked up and saw the whole region of the Jordan, and he noticed that all of it was well watered. So he sees it's, it's, it's a fruitful. It's, for him, it's worth the risk. Uh, before the Lord obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, all the way to Zor, Lot chose for himself the whole region of the Jordan and traveled toward the east. So the relatives separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, but Lot settled among the cities of the Jordan plain and pitched his tent next to Sodom. And so uh, mark this. This is an important theme that you'll see in Scripture. Uh, for example, 
uh, when you see um, when you see Samson uh, in the story of Samson and Delilah this is one of those great warnings um, in scripture it's, it's kind of the it, it's the Prometheus you know it's just like you just the desire to fly too close to the sun um, and Samson was told to not to not go to not go to Timnah um, and he's like, he's playing on the edges of what is acceptable behavior. He's opening himself up to temptation. Um, and what happens is, you know, he goes to Timnah and he, and he, sees, he sees the beautiful women there. And next thing you know, he, he crosses the line. At first, he's just playing on the borders. But then there is the crossing of the line <laughs> into, uh, into the very thing that he should not be doing. Um, he breaks his Nazarene vow and ultimately his, his strength and his power, all of that, he surrenders this God-given gift um, as he's seduced by the woman of the very place that his parents told him to not go to. Um, and so I think this thing, did he sin by going to, to Timnah? No, but he put himself in harm's way. He was not being wise in his decision. You know, and I think that this is a, this is a powerful reminder for all of us um, that there's, I, I do this all the time. It's this, I think it's a nature of like that desire to see how, how close you can get to the edge without falling off. Um, and there's a, there's a tendency, um, especially if you have a, um, any kind of bent toward self-destructive behavior, um, and not saying that your pastor does, but he does. Um, and uh, the, this, that desire to always push, push the limitations. Um, and it, I think it's one of those things, A, we should be aware of in ourselves, um, but why would, we, why would we put ourselves next to something that is only gonna lead to temptation and things that we ought not to be participating? I think that Lot put himself in a precarious position. Um, I, I think that that, my reading is that there's a, there's a reason why it's noting the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah now, is that Lot chose to put himself next, and he's like, I'm, I'm following God, I'm, I'm doing the right thing, I'm, I'm, I've been, but now he doesn't have the covering of Abram, and the covenant's been made with Abram, um, and so Lot, and I think there was an element of Abram's very position that kept Lot sanctified, now Lot is making decisions based upon what he sees as a lucrative living. He sees the fruitfulness of the land um, and is willing to put himself um, next to a city that is already known for its wickedness. Um, I think we do that. I think that kind of behavior, this is why all the way already back, what does it say to Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to open the door to it. Um, but you probably shouldn't put yourself right next to it. Like, don't put yourself in, in harm's way. Uh, so, what happens after this? And after Lot had departed, notice this. Now the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you stand to the north, south, east, and west. I will give all the land that you see to you and your descendants forever, and I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone is able to count the dust of the earth, then your descendants also can be counted. Uh, get up and walk throughout the land, for I will give it to you. Um, this, uh, this is a play, the, the translation is this way, because it, the, the idea of look up, arise, step, wherever you step, 
it's yours. Notice what God does. Abram takes the back seat and says, Lot, you pick what you want. And God responds, I think, I think God responds to a, to humility. And humility is choosing to be last. Um, and I think that there's a pattern here um, of Christian behavior that is, a, that is one of those strange aspects of the upside down kingdom. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Abram tells Lot, you pick where you want to go. Um, but what is Lot, what is Abram already giving us a picture of is that it doesn't matter actually where he goes as long as Yahweh is the one that's leading. Um, and so he's not uncomfortable saying, Lot, you pick where you want because I already know that my life is in, I don't have to, I don't have to chase after the pretty things because I'm already, God's already proving to be the one that's my sustainer, the one who will carry me. And what does God do? He honors that. And now he says, listen, you just, you just took the back seat and you said, you pick first. Now I'm telling you wherever you step, <laughs> doesn't matter what direction you go, I am the one who truly owns everything and it's yours. It's yours. I love that. Um, and so what, what is he going to say? And I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth. I love that. If anyone is able to count the dust of the earth, then your descendants also can be counted. Get up and walk throughout the land for I will give it to you. Get up and walk. Just go. I, I don't know if you guys, I, I had this um, person once. It's an interesting thing. And, and it, it challenged me. It challenged me theologically. I had to really think about it. But I, I think there's something to it. And, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that this pastor was drawing even on this, this concept, this, this text. But it's the real fundamental belief that, for example, this city, this city may be a spiritual stronghold for darkness. There's no doubt. I always say that I don't believe there's a demon under every rock except maybe in Portland. Um, and, uh, and, and the fact is, is I do think that there are spiritual strongholds. I think they're just places where people are more surrendered to darkness than others. It's just a fact, but it's also the, we're told that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still, the, it's still God's world. It's still Jesus's world. And, and this is why Luther said, Satan is still the Lord's Satan. And all he means by that is that Satan can only function within the parameters that God allows him to because it's still his creation. It's still his story. And ultimately he's going to tell it um, uh, the way that he wants to. And, and what I think was interesting, this guy said to me, um, he said, do you ever take time to walk through the neighborhood where Dwarf Hope is and just claim it, <laughs> like spiritually claim it for Jesus? And I was like, no, I haven't done that. Um, but, and I thought it was kind of weird. But I was reading this tonight and I was, I was struck by that. I, th I think that there's, there's something to it. Now, I don't think we can make demands like, Jesus, give me that building, and I want that. But I actually have, like Evan just came to me, and he said, there's this church that's on the, out in East County and, um, that I just drive by, and I just, I don't know why, I just feel like it's just, I, I just could see a Door of Hope community there. I, like, it could be such a cool space, and it makes me sad that it doesn't seem like there's anything going on there. And I think it's a beautiful thing to pray for that. I prayed for this building years, years before 
it ever came into the hands of Door of Hope. We tried to buy this building in 2010 um, and the Lord didn't have it in the cards for us. We didn't have the finances and Mars Hill had a lot more money and they were able to buy it from a cult. It was a cult. Um, but I think it's cool that the prayer, my prayer was just that it would be a church that was actually utilized to preach the gospel um, and not the fall. I did a wedding here and I was like, man, I'm just gonna pray against whatever's going on in there because it's weird. Um, and there was, there was a legitimate cult that was watching videos of their dead leader on Sundays and the family lived in the basement. It was pretty wild. Um, and they were really loathed by the neighborhood. But, but I did pray for it and I realized like, I think there is something to that. The, and, that, and it's more of just that, that act of faith is inviting God in to the very places where we walk, that, that, that God wants to give to us um, uh, the responsibility of being conduits of his gospel. Um, and he's called us to this place for a time such as this. Um, and I don't know, I, I just, I took that to heart and I'm like, I'm gonna start doing that. I'm just gonna start praying. I'm gonna get up and walk and say, Lord, I want, I want this place, this street to be known for your gospel. And I felt it, the first time I really felt a pain for that in a long time was when, I t when we did church in the park up at Western and we're in the very spot where kind of I realized like this is where the, the dream that I had of a revival happening in the city um, and I just don't, I don't think those things are coincidence. I think that God gives people a common vision, um, that there's a hunger, uh, there's a unified desire to see a, an awakening, not just members of Door of Hope, but throughout the city. Um, and we should be more faithful. There is a thing called prayer walking, and I think it's a worthwhile thing. But I love this um, because here you have Abram. He's in intimate communion with God. Um, and God's command to him is get up and walk. Where, and wherever you, wherever you go, it's yours. And I think that for us, it's, it's, I think there's two sides to that. The one is recognizing that God is with us when we go. Um, and what I think is interesting is that God is offering to Abraham this incredible provision. Um, but Abram seems to be most focused in on, I just need to know that you're actually with me and that you're going to keep the covenant that you've given to me, which is provide me with a family. Because look what happens after that. So Abram moved his tents and went to live by the oaks of, the, of Mamre in Hebron. And he built an altar to the Lord there. Notice once again, God appears, communes with Abram, reestablishes covenant again. And what is Abram's immediate result, response? Altar. I need to remember this. Um, I need to remember this, which tells you that those incredible moments where God breaks into your reality in such a way that it, that it um, carries with it a sort of supernatural uh, like time where you're like, did that really happen? The reason we create memorials is because, because we are so quick to forget to remember. Um, and it tells me that the, most of the Christian life has not lived in, on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Most of it's lived in the valley. Um, and this is why we have to remember. We have to create ways to remember when God showed up, when God healed, when God spoke, when God answered this prayer. Um, we need to remember. Um, and it's what actually helps us enter into worship. At that time, Amraphel, 
chapter 14, verse 1. King of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Kedarlamer, king of Elam, and title king of nations, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemavar, king of Zebo, um, Zeboim, and king of Bela, that is Zor. These last five kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. For 12 years they had served Kedarlaomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. Um, when you read about kingdoms, think of it almost like, uh, like, uh, Arth like early England. These, are, these, are not like, <laughs> these aren't like massive empires, like the Persian Empire or the Roman Empire. These are, these are essentially like village kings. Uh, these are essentially small towns and each town has a king. And it'd be like the king of Portland going to war with the king of Oregon City. It's that kind of thing. Uh, so it's like, you know, and even Portland would be way too big for you to, like, these are smaller, smaller groups, but they're essentially tribes. Um, and it's, it's a tribal time in human history. Um, and there are rulers. And these rulers over these different areas, they've come together and now there's, and there's, there's one that's established himself as top dog and now five like lesser rulers. It's like Game of Thrones. Not that I've ever seen that, but yes, I have. Um, and so, um, and you're like, how could you? I don't know. This is, it was one of those moments where I was playing on the border of Timna. That's the, that's the point. Don't, don't get HBO or you'll get burned. I guess is the moral of the story. <laughs> um, so here you have these, these kingdoms, these small rivaling kingdoms, and now five have joined forces to come against, uh, to come against the others. And what do you have here? In the 14th year, Kedalamar and the kings who were his allies came and defeated the Raphiats in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, and the Zuzites in Ham, and the Emites in Shava, Kirathum and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as, far as El Paran, which is near the desert. Then they attacked En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, again, and they conquered all the territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma and the king of Zeboam and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and prepared for battle. In the valley of Sidim, they met Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, title king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar. I feel like I'm reading a fantasy novel right now. Um, four kings fought against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And when the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into them. Uh, that statement is not, they were running and they fell in a tar pit. It's, that's where they died. They, they fell. <laughs> um, but some survivors fled to the hills. So this is a, a place of tar pits, but the, the point is, is that these kings, um, uh, when the, these kings were, um, were defeated, and the four victorious kings took all the possessions, the food of Sodom and Gomorrah and left. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions when they left, for Lot was living in Sodom. A fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, uh, this is an interesting line. It's the first time it's used, but Abram the Hebrew, um, uh, a lot of scholars believe that this was actually something that was added to the text um, at a later date 
um, and, and even possibly came from a text that was not a Jewish text by the fact that it referred to him as Abram the Hebrew, uh, which is a weird shift in the language. But it's one of those things that, that is always good to remember when people ask me about um, inspiration or, or infallibility um, or the inspiration of scripture, that the scripture is a true witness uh, to real events, but we're dealing with translations and we're dealing with copying of texts. Um, and so, yes, I believe that scripture is God breathed. Um, but we are also relying on copies of copies of copies and God is able to preserve and keep uh, uh, and to keep his message. And you know, one of the most, um, one of the most powerful uh, examples of how trustworthy scripture is was actually when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, because for Hebrew scribes, the importance of copying down the words to, um, to the letter correctly, that, that there was like a, a a spiritual weight, like uh, uh, deeply superstitious, that even to write one letter wrong uh, was to bring upon themselves judgment um, of God. And so there's a, the, the, the Hebrews were very, very astute um, at keeping, um, keeping uh, the text true to the letter. And when they did, when they looked through the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, which proved to be a thousand years older than the, the oldest text that we had at the time, uh, what they found is that there were differences. There were, there were definitely discrepancies, but not a single discrepancy um, around the meaning of the text or the content of the, the text. So it'd be like a word like and or, you know, a filler. So that's where I, I, when I say I am not an, I'm not an advocate of wooden literalism is that I think that, that we, that you miss the forest for the trees when you, when you become focused on what is the word? What, no, what we want to understand is what is God saying to us through this text? And he has protected his message and the word of God. And if the Dead Sea Scrolls proved anything is that actually even down to the letter for the most part, <laughs> It's, it's pretty amazing that even through translation and, um, and copying, uh, how few errors there were. Um, and so that's why Tim would always refer to the Hebrew scribes as um, literary ninjas. Um, and they are. Uh, it's, it's incredible. So there are moments where they'll take a phrase to, and, you know, Isaiah will take a prayer from uh, from Psalms and insert it into this to expand the meaning or, the, or expand the understanding of what the prophecy is about. Those kinds of decisions, uh, we can still trust that if God is the, if God is the author of scripture, um, that those could be inspired decisions and that the scriptures that we have is, is a trustworthy message uh, that comes to us from God uh, and, and is all of it's pointing us to Jesus. Uh, and I think that that's what's important. So I don't really care uh, if Abram, the Hebrew, uh, was not originally there because it doesn't change the meaning of anything in the story. That's my point. That was a long rambling point. And I may have just created more confusion for you around, uh, around uh, our confidence in scripture, but I, I hope not. Um, now, Abram was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, um, the brother of Eshel and Aner. That's a terrible name. Um, all these were allied by treaty with Abram. So Abram's living in a place where he has created a 
covenant or a treaty with the people that are there. Um, and, and, some, and, and the reason that that is, that is stated is, um, is so that you understand as a reader how he was able to get them to go with him to save Lot. Um, when Abram heard that his nephew had been taken captive, he mobilized his 318 trained men who had been born in his household, and he pursued the invaders as far as Dan. Uh, this is a fascinating thing. What is Abram? He's a shepherd. <laughs> um, he's, a, he's a heavy shepherd. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a true heavy. Like he's got the money, he's got the resources, but he's also a stinking military man. Like he's a warrior shepherd. I think it's a really beautiful and, and powerful thing. Like this, is not, these weren't, like this is not some pushover, which is weird that he got so scared of, the, of Pharaoh. Because like here he's like, like, like you're going to give your wife to another dude, but right now you're going to go, you're going to go chase down a bunch of kings to save your nephew. That's just crazy to me. But I'm trying, I'm not trying to judge him, but I'm kind of judging him. Um, but I think it's, it's an amazing, amazing statement that the, he's, here he is, this warrior, this warrior king or this warrior shepherd. Then during the night, Abram divided his forces against them and defeated them. He chased them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He retrieved all the stolen property. He also brought back his nephew Lot and his possessions, as well as the women and the rest of the people. And after Abram returned from defeating Kedar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Sheba. And this is interesting because we're just told that the king of Sodom fell. Um, uh, in the tar pits. In the past, I kind of read that as like, he fell in a tar pit, got out of the tar pit. I didn't realize that was a statement about death. So uh, what happens when a king dies of a kingdom? Someone else is assigned king. So uh, that's how it works. Uh, so went out to meet Abram. So I don't think we're talking about the same guy here. Uh, in the Valley of Sheva, known as the King's Valley. Now here is the mystery passage that we need to spend some time on. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Who's Melchizedek? We have no idea. How did he show up in this story? We have no idea. Um, Salem is a word for peace, but it's also a word that, um, that is associated with Jerusalem, and most believe that this is where this strange king, who also seems to function like a priest, comes from. Now keep in mind, this is before the Levitical priesthood. So Levitical priesthood, as it says in Hebrews, they weren't, the, the Levites were still in the loins of Abram at this point. That's what Hebrews says, which means they hadn't even been born yet. They hadn't even been conceived. Um, so, so we're dealing with a a king who is also a priest. Now this is a, this is a strange thing. Within, within Hebrew tradition, uh, the kings came from what? The line of Judah. Uh, you have the, the kings of David is the line of Judah. That's the promise. Uh, that's the line that the Messiah will come through. Um, and what line does the priest come from? from the Levites, and the, the Levites were never kings. And the Levites were not even allowed to have a portion of the land um, because 
the Lord their God was their portion. And this is why the children of Israel were required to tithe. And if you think about it, the tithe for Israel in many ways is like almost like a, this is a theocracy. It's, it was a nation ruled by God. Um, but the tithe was meant to pay for the upkeep of the temple and to pay the, pay the priests. Um, it was a, it was a tax. It was essentially a, like, it's like our tax that we pay to our country, um, because unlike America, this was an actual theocracy where God is essentially president. Um, and so, the, this is an interesting thing. The the, the Levites received um, the tithes from the children of Israel, but this is long before Torah. This is long before uh, long before the Levites even existed. And here you have a king who is also a priest. So right there, that's weird. And just so you know, the, the Hebrew scribes, the prophets, they, they took note of this. There was something about Melchizedek becomes an important figure, even though he's only mentioned here. He's mentioned again in Psalm 110. So in the Hebrew scriptures, he's only mentioned two times. Uh, here in Genesis, and then again in Psalm 110. But what does it say in Psalm 110? It's a psalm written by David. And he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the promised Messiah who will come through the line of Judah. And he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, okay. So there's this, there's this motif that's established here. Um, but we still have to deal with the fact that this man is real and he shows up and he's a worshiper of the true God. But he, when, what is Genesis filled with? Ian just spent a ton of time breaking it down. Last, what is it filled with? Genealogies. And what do we not have with Melchizedek? Any genealogy. Uh, we have no genealogy. We get genealogies of like all the bad people even. But there's nothing on this guy. Um, we don't know anything about him other than what we have here and then what scripture opens up for us later. Um, and, and I think it's a very profound thing. But Stalem is traditionally identified as the Jebusite stronghold of old Jerusalem. Um, but, but there's a ton of speculation about who this Melchizedek character is. Some believe that Melchizedek is, uh, is a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, that this is a, a, that Abram is actually meeting Jesus before he was Jesus. And it, when I say that, I mean... Jesus is the human name given to the eternal Son of God. So it's a possibility. Uh, some believe that, um, that, it's, um, that it's Ham. Uh, not likely. I think what it probably is, is the king of Salem, <laughs> who's a high priest of the true God, who also is a picture of... Um, there is the, I think that it's not, I don't, I, it doesn't need to be a pre-incarnate Christ to be a pointer to Christ, is my point. Um, although, maybe. I, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us, so all you can do is speculate. And I would say the best thing to do is just to carry the significance of Melchizedek through the scriptures. Now, what does he do? Uh, uh, these, are, these are really fascinating things. First of all, he brings out bread and wine. Um, that remind you of anything as a, 
um, as a Christian. Do you think Jesus possibly had in mind Melchizedek when he breaks the bread and, and brings the cup? I think it's very possible, uh, especially if he is the logos, uh, the, very, the very word of God incarnate, <laughs> if you will. Um, uh, but he brings him bread and wine. And it says, and now he was a priest of the Most High God, and he blesses Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, worthy of praises, the Most High God, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And what does Abram do? He gives him, gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. So Ab this is the, one of the most mysterious aspects of this passage, is that Abram recognizes Melchizedek's supremacy in this particular narrative and we're not given any explanation for it nor are we nor do we know how he's how he has the knowledge of the one true god um, but there is something very mysterious happening and i think that all i can say about it is that this had to have been the very thing is david is meditating upon the torah and he writes psalm 110 and he feels led by the spirit to write that psalm down that they're already thinking and they're putting together Melchizedek is pointing us to something bigger and that I think we can for sure say from the text that it's pointing us to a mystery that will not be understood until we come to Jesus and this is why Hebrews is such a profound book there are <laughs> there are literally three chapters that deal with Jesus as um, as the, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. In fact, in Hebrews um, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, And being made perfect, speaking of Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And one of the big emphasis that Hebrews gives to Melchizedek is that he has no beginning or end that it is unlike the Levitical priesthood, which had a timeline. Jesus is not only the high priest, the true high priest, but he is also the once and for all sacrifice. And not only that, it says one, what does it say again and again in Hebrews? One who is better than Moses, one who is better than the angels, one who is better than uh, the law, for he's the fulfillment of law, one who is better than the sacrifices for he's the once and for all sacrifice he's one who is one who is better than the than the tabernacle because he is himself the tabernacle do you know what early christians were accused of by the romans do you know what they were accused of they weren't accused of false worship they were accused of actually of atheism um, because for the romans Everything was derived around temple worship. But the early Christians didn't have that. They're like, a Roman asked a Christian, like, okay, well, where's your priest? We don't, we don't have a priest. Jesus is our priest. Where's your sacrifice? We don't have sacrifices. Jesus is the sacrifice. Where's your temple? We don't have a temple because we are the temple of the living God. Jesus is the true temple. And what would that make a, a person in the first century who worships a whole, a whole plethora of gods think? Yeah, you don't believe in God. Like, 
because your understanding of God is disconnected from everything that I, am, I have been taught to associate God with, which was temple worship, temple sacrifice. Um, you're, you're, all of these things were represented in these rituals, but the Christian was, it was all this new internal reality of transformation that led to agape love. That's why Christians were not only accused of being atheists, but they were also accused of, of having love orgies and all these things because their worship and their, was now founded upon the one who is the final word, the final sacrifice, the final priest, the final temple, and that he's living within us. And the, and the reality of that living is we, we love each other and we care for one another. And we care for the people that the rest of society says you shouldn't even care about. Um, it was completely baffling is my point. Christianity was absolutely baffling. Um, and, it, and it shows to me, it's one of the great arguments for Christianity is the Jerusalem factor. It's like, how did this, how did this religion, which was viewed almost as an anti-religion, explode um, on the scene? It's, it's, the only thing I can say is miraculously is how it exploded. It exploded because people's lives were being transformed from the inside out. It wasn't driven by external false worship any longer. It was driven by a radical new identification. Um, and so Melchizedek, my point is this, is a very, very mysterious and important figure that is pointing us already here toward Jesus, who is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then there's all of a sudden, it just shifts, it shifts. It's like Melchizedek wasn't even there. There's no acknowledgement that he was there. It's funny, Abram just gave him a tenth of everything and then he never talks about him again. It's never brought up again. I just find that so weird, so mysterious. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and take the possessions for yourself. But Abram replied to the king of Sodom, once again, very similar to how he was with Lot. You pick where you wanna go. Abram is once again showing his absolute trust in, in Yahweh. He says to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand to the Lord, the most high God, creator of heaven and earth, and vow that I will take nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal. That way you can never say it, it is I who made Abram rich. And so notice Abram does not ex accept wealth from the king of Sodom because he wants to be a living conduit of what it looks like to live in dependence upon Yahweh. The world must know that what I have has come to me as pure gift from the God of heaven. Um, and I love that. It's a, it, this is a really beautiful picture of like the refusal to compromise. And, and it's a powerful contrast to Lot. Uh, I will take nothing except compensation for what the young men have eaten. As for the share of the men who went with me, Anner, Eshel, and Mamre, the, these are the three, um, the three families that he had some kind of covenant with um, where he was living, uh, that went with him to help him restore his cousin and, and to conquer the kings. He said, let them take their share. After these things, once again, notice the pattern. Some, some activity. Abram does something that puts God first. And again, what, what happens? God shows up and begins to speak to him. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and the one who will reward you in great abundance. This is, this is already um, 
a, a phrase that is, that is looking back to even Melchizedek's statement over Abram, which is God has given your enemies into your hand. He is the creator, uh, the sovereign God who, um, who fights our battles. And, and now God refers to himself. I love this. Um, I am your shield and the one who will reward you in great abundance. Um, your reward in great abundance. When the phrase um, uh, follows, uh, follows a noun, um, I, I love this, this footnote, it carries with the nuance of very, very great um, or in great abundance. Uh, and essentially, uh, some translations say, I, will, I the Lord, am your reward. Um, but God is, the, is, God is the treasure, friends. I think the point here isn't um, God saying to Abram, I'm going to give you lots of stuff because you didn't take stuff. He's saying to Abram, I am, I am the greatest gift that you will ever receive. And I will bless you because you're trusting in me. Um, uh, and, and I think that this is such a beautiful um, reminder to us because we're so convinced that we need all sorts of things. Um, and I love that Abram's like, I don't need that stuff. Um, I, don't want, I don't want people to assume I don't want people to think that I am made by anyone other than the God who I follow. What a, I mean, it, we could take a lot, we could learn a lot from that kind of spirit. I want to be known for my love for Jesus. Um, I want to have everything stripped away that would, would ever hinder even people's understanding of that. Um, I think that, that is a beautiful, that's a beautiful heart before God. I always say that God can do nothing with a divided heart, but he can do everything with a heart that's broken before him, humble and contrite before him. Um, and notice what Abraham says, and this, this shows the level of intimacy that Abraham has. He now is able to bring up his doubts. Um, and I think this is unique. He says, oh, sovereign Lord, oh, sovereign Lord. He's recognizing Yahweh is sovereign over the world. What will you give me since I continue to be childless? I, I'm not looking for treasures. I just want to see the word that you have given to me come to fruition. I don't have a child yet. Since I continue to be childless, and my heir is Eliezer of Damascus, Abram added, since you have not given me a descendant, then look, one born in my house will be my heir. But look, the word of the, the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Um, and the word, the actual Hebrew is just like, this man will not inherit you. Um, heir is not, a, is not a Hebrew word. It's literally, this, I, if you don't give me a child, someone else will inherit me. Um, everything that I possess that represents me becomes someone else's. Uh, and the Lord took him outside. I says, but the Lord, the, but look, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. He will not inherit you. But instead, a son who comes from your own body will be your heir, will be the one who inherits you. <laughs> and the Lord took him outside and said, gaze into the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. And then he said to them, so will your descendants be. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord considered his response of faith as proof of genuine loyalty. It's a really interesting translation that the NET gives, but it helps give some meaning um, or, or maybe some clarity around the concepts that, of a phrase that you've all heard. And I, I, I use this, I actually don't prefer this over the traditional, but I like it because it forces us to think about what does that 
traditional statement, and Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him as what? Righteousness. Um, I, I think that this is um, an interesting statement here, because when we talk about um, what does it mean to be righteous, we need to understand that justification um, does not mean the believer is righteous. Um, it means that God credits him or her with righteousness um, because of their faith in him. Uh, and so, that, but that faith um, is wrapped up. That's the thing is that faith in the living God was not just blind faith, but it was covenantal loyalty. Um, and so there is an accuracy um, in this trans translation. Um, uh, and, I, and I think that we're so fearful um, especially if we come from a good, just healthy Protestant roots of, you know, never wanting to make our salvation based on works. Um, uh, and it's not. God is the salvation. God reaches down and grabs Abram, <laughs> like, out of, out of a pagan world and says, follow me. But Abram, Abram follows him. And his faith in God's promise um, is accounted to him as righteousness. So salvation is not by Abram's work, but it's by his faith in the God who works in and through him. Um, and, but it's also marked by Abram's obedience to the very God whom he trusts. And so you can't separate those worlds. Uh, uh, this is important. We, you know, we talk about this a lot as staff and as the preaching team of just this, this balancing act of helping people recognize that grace is something that comes, the reason grace is grace is because it comes to you when you don't deserve it. And in my heart is that the grace of God, God's love toward you in spite of you is the great motivator for living differently. Um, and so I just believe that grace is necessary if we want a sustained, um, if we want to live out a sustain loyalty. I'm not going to maintain loyalty to a God that I don't trust and that I'm just scared of. Um, fear may be the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of it. And it says perfect love casts out fear. I believe that only a right understanding of grace will actually create within us a desire to continue to, what grace is a reminder is that even when I fall, I can get up and start again. And the more I understand that, the more I want to be faithful, the more I want to, the more I want to prove my loyalty because he doesn't abandon me when I fall. Um, and so I think that we can get so caught up in these nuances, like I don't want to be, you know, take responsibility for anything because that would be, you know, robbing God of his sovereign glory. That's bogus. And that just sounds like a terrible excuse for just living stupidly. Um, I, I think that what we need to understand is that God's grace is so, isn't that what Paul said? Should I sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. A covenant loyalty should be the natural outcome of one who has been justified by faith. Um, and so I think this is a really interesting thing that there are, there are many, um, that, that there are many layers to this. There is legitimate, I'm trusting God at his word, but that trust is exemplified by Abram's willingness to go where God calls him. Does Abraham make mistakes along the way? Yes, he does. Um, but does Abram stay in the place of failure? No, he continually comes back 
um, which is, I also think, connects us to that, that need of the altars, the places where we remember who we are, remember the one that, we, that called us out of, um, out of the place we once were and brought us into life and into hope that we have to continually remember because when we forget to remember, we tend to drift. I think it's just the bottom line. So I love this. I think that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord considered his response of faith as a proof of that genuine loyalty um, or accounted as righteousness. So although I don't love that translation, I like that it provokes us to think about that on, a, on, a, on another level or from another angle. The Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, but what can I know that I am to possess it. And the Lord said to him, take for me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram took all these for him and then cut them in two and placed each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Sorry. When birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun went down, Abram fell sound asleep and great terror overwhelmed him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I will execute judgment on that nation that they will serve. Afterward, they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will return here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its limit. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot with a flaming torch passed between the animal parts. That day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And so here we, we end with, um, with God promising uh, not only the offspring that will come from his body, but also promising in the land. And Abraham's response, um, uh, the, the response to the Lord was the Lord tells him, gives him a list of things. I want these animals to be sacrificed. Um, and I think that this is a, this is already, these are things pointing us toward, which we'll be able to dig into in, in greater detail, the meaning of the, of the various sacrifices. I'm not going to get into that tonight, um, uh, but there, there's meaning behind every kind of sacrifice, and, and we have a whole book that explains all of that. And you, you know, why waste that on this moment when we can spend, you know, several weeks, many weeks in Leviticus? Um, we get to talk about all kinds of things, like don't, you know, don't strangle a baby goat in its mother's milk. Like that's a bad thing. I don't know why. Uh, there's, I don't know. All I know is God gives a command. Abraham's loyalty is, do you think Abraham like totally got like, what's the purpose of cutting these things in half? Um, I, I don't know. What if Lord was just playing a joke and I'm like, what else should I tell him to get right now? I don't know, like throw in a couple birds. See what he does. It's like he's queasy. He doesn't like to cut things. It's, it's a very disturbing picture, really. It's like these halves of animals. Um, but the point is this. I think this is an interesting thing. Abram's faithfulness and the growing intimacy with Yahweh 
leads to Yahweh actually giving Abram revelation, not of only the good that he plans for him, but he reminds Abraham, Abram of the precariousness of the human situation, that sin is actually going to lead his, I mean, I think it's so fascinating, it's his darkness, he becomes terrified by this vision of his own descendants being brought into slavery. And I think it's not, and even that vision of what would happen in Egypt is a picture of what would be Israel's history even to this day. Today, we are still seeing the nightmare of Abram being played out. You guys realize that? That the Jewish people maintained a, literally maintained a national identity without a nation for 2,000 years. Um, and their history uh, is, a, is, is one that is marked by both blessing, incredible blessing, and incredible heartbreak. Um, and it seems like that motif didn't end with the close of scripture. It seems like it was just getting started. And I think that this is it's a great place um, for us uh, to, to close tonight. I think it would be good for us to just pray um, uh, this is the most serious um, uh, event that we've seen. This is the most significant um, attack that I think could be a, a legitimate war that we have not seen in Israel in, in, our li in, in my lifetime. Um, there's, there's been lots of dangerous times and there's been lots of, lots of scary moments, but uh, this is unprecedented in, in, it, in the scope of the attack carried out by the Hamas on the, on the Jewish people. Um, and, then, and then of course, I mean, if you know anything about Gaza, it is just packed with people. And so sad that you have Palestinian people, just families trying to exist like everyone else. And you have Jewish families just trying to exist. And you have one group that has, that has now created, um, not only has it been this catastrophic reality for Israel, but it's going to be a catastrophic reality for Palestine because war is never, like the aspect of war that we have to understand is that it's just innocent people get hurt. That's, it's just, it's just a heartbreaking reality. Um, and uh, I, I don't know where everyone's at in this room in regards to their, their, um, their convictions around, uh, around Israel as God's people and, and all of that. All I know is God loves this world and I hate that innocent people, that children in Israel and in Palestine are gonna suffer because men are stupid um, and because evil is still, is still rearing its ugly head. And we have to remember as a church, we're told it's gonna get worse before it gets better. Um, and our prayer, um, because we have to also remember that these are two nations, neither, I mean, whether you want to consider Palestine a nation or not, doesn't really matter. Um, they view themselves as a nation who had their land taken from them. All I can tell you is that both nations, neither of them are following Jesus. Um, and our prayer should be is that God would intervene um, and that there would be peace and that there would be, I would love to see mass conversion. And there is mass conversions happening all through the Middle East right now. Um, uh, actually at a much faster rate than there is amongst the Jews in Israel. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, heartbreaking reality, but this is the word of the Lord.